and exactly. and and just and you just have you just have the guy. Yeah. The yeah, absolute you have boy. the problem of He's Bernie. the absolute boy, the guy, the dude. Yeah. yeah, the dude, the man. Yeah, you have the the person, the person. We're not going to gender this. He's, He's the man of the his person. time, the person of his time. Yeah. Welcome yep. back to Left Anchor. I'm Alexi the Greek. And I'm Ryan Cooper. Welcoming to the podcast uh, Professor Matt Carp, um, who is an associate professor of history at Princeton, if I'm not mistaken, and um, author of the book This Vast Southern Empire, uh, which is a, 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 a very good uh, book, which I have actually read from beginning to end about the the, 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 the sort of the, the Broadly, the foreign policy orientation of the South in the in the pre Civil War period, in which Southern politicians dominated the federal government, um, and other things, of course, so certainly simplifying somewhat, and uh, also working on a another book about um, uh, you might say the mass politics of anti slavery, which is the title of this article in Catalyst, which is where we want to start. Um, so, so, uh, well, actually maybe to start with Matt, can you tell us what, what is Catalyst and like, like, you know, like, what are they trying to do over there? What is it catalyzing? Yeah. Yeah. Well, well, first, first I just want to clarify, not only am I, uh, an associate professor at Princeton right now, I'm technically a rosé sipping associate <laughs> professor <laughs> at Princeton, but it's important for the listeners to know that this rosé comes in a can. So, that, so that it's hipster, just, um, hipster, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's even, in other words, it's even worse <laughs> than you possibly Excellent. were imagining. Um, yeah. Uh, Catalyst. So it's a relatively new journal. Um, wow. it's published by Jacobin, uh, Vivek Chibber is the editor and, um, they're, you know, uh, I, I, I would describe it as, uh, you could describe it as a sort of more intellectual, theoretical, academic scholarly arm of Jacobin in this that I think the politics are broadly similar. Um, but um, I, I think it was in, in founded and still intends to be the place for, um, you know, I, I would put it on a par with, say, the New Left Review or other journals of that ilk that are that are that are attempting to be, you know, stuff that's um, published writing that is political in intent and kind of positioning um, but also academic in its kind of in its composition and its sort of seriousness so that, you know, so it's somewhere between or it takes components of both like an academic journal, um, but it has a kind of political analysis and a kind of political energy um, uh, behind it. Uh, and I would say, yeah, the pol- ultimately the politics. I mean, there's a there's a spectrum. And I think Chibber definitely wants to in, uh, produce and even host you know, arguments. So it's not not to pretend that there's like a kind of a clear party line. But I think that the spectrum is broadly similar to a kind of Jacobin spectrum of argument in terms of its ideology. Um, but yeah, they've published a lot of um, uh, really good pieces and sort of provocative pieces. Even there was a there was a left wing case for open borders, which definitely provoked a lot of a couple issues back by Susie Lee, which was pretty interesting, which was an, you know, sort of not a moralistic argument about the border, but a kind of class based argument. Mm. Uh, and there was an argument about the last issue. They had a really good piece on uh, an ecological politics of the working class, which kind of, again, making 
um, making a, a you know making an argument for how you know a left could do environmental politics that centers class. Uh, anyway, and they, they they're trying to do um, publish a bunch of work that's not just um, uh, from different disciplines too, historians, sociologists, philosophers, even literary people. I really do recommend people uh, if you're interested in that. If this thing kind of sounds like your bag. Um, if that is, you're listening to this podcast, it probably almost <laughs> certainly is your bag. Uh, you should uh, at least check it out and be aware of it. Yeah. We will certainly link to it. Yeah. 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 Um, <clears throat> and, um, you know, maybe a, a decent jumping off point here, uh, it, in, in a way that makes this sort of relevant is, uh, you know, how you talk about, you know, the, the sort of democratic orientation and uh, uh, state power orientation of the anti-slavery movement um, because the you know uh, uh, there is a abolitionist movement going on uh, you know going back like hundreds of years right which uh, was was focused on um, you know like sort of sort of moral theological arguments against slavery. All very compelling, of course, but not really hooked up with any sort of like mass politics. It was it was like kind of like really kind of primitive, like propagandizing and so on. But then, you know, as like as uh, as it got more and more sophisticated, they're they're they're, you know, developed a sort of plan to conquer the power of the state. Right. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, the, so this is a it's a historical article. The piece I've written, it's sort of from, as Ryan said, it's from the it's the sort of first big block of um, of research that I've published on this on this subject in, in this book that I want to write about about anti-slavery and how it went from the the fringe margins of American politics in the early 19th century, even in the into the middle 19th century, to in effect state power and you know the greatest social revolution, uh, you know, the United States has seen in, you know, civil, the civil war, emancipation, reconstruction. And in some ways, the burden of, of that book and the burden of this piece is to kind of think about if we take seriously, um, the, uh, the, the sort of the genuinely revolutionary quality of, of emancipation itself during the war. Uh, and we, we have to sort of think a little bit harder, uh, about, uh, I think about where it came from and what, what political forces sort of preceded it, anticipated it, even sort of produced it. And yeah, my argument, the, the, the argument of the, of the piece here is that, um, this revolutionary transformation, the destruction of slavery, um, came about in a way that was relative in the United States in a way that was sort of distinctive, uh, in the 19th century world in that it was a product of mass political organizing and then ultimately sort of electoral victory. Um, and I, you know, that we can go into the sort of like the different dimensions of the argument, but that's the, that's the essential overview of the case. And I think, um, yeah, maybe I'll stop there and let's see what you guys well, I found how you I want to follow up really, really interesting. And the implications are, I think, are, are clear and we can tease them out later is the idea that not only is, say, kind of a more conservative uh, notion that, say, Lincoln is responsible. He alone produced this great emancipatory right. liberation, but but also something for leftists that might cause people to, to think on things a little bit differently is 
it also wasn't just John Brown and Raiding Harper's Ferry. In a way, you say something very provocative, which is that mass politics, right, was more disruptive than John Brown and Harper's Ferry. And and maybe if you could talk about that a little bit, because that's very interesting. Yeah, so I was just teaching, um, actually just teaching this in my Civil War course, uh, uh, the the James, James McPherson wrote a classic article uh, in which he, you know, titled Who Freed the Slaves, in which the last line is literally Lincoln freed the slaves. <laughs> it's just, I love I love Jim McPherson. I love his work. Um, but, yeah, I don't I don't think that that uh, I mean, and there's more to it, certainly, than that uh, than that one sentence. But uh, I don't think that that uh, is total is is fully adequate to the case. But I think at the same time, neither is. Um, from a number of perspectives, there, you know, historically, it's a va- it's a large and kind of, you know, um, complex debate about a how emancipation, be what drove anti-slavery, et cetera. There are a lot of ways to pick at this. But I think, yeah. Uh, and and the, the piece actually isn't concerned of emancipation on the ground. That's an argument that, um, you know, Jim Oakes has has most recently made in Freedom National, where he argues not Lincoln freed the slaves, but um, a combination of the Republican Party and 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 the Union Army and um, you know slaves themselves fleeing uh, fleeing uh, the fleeing uh, across, fleeing plantations across military lines uh, sort of you know it, it collectively undermined slavery. And there's a lot of I mean, and there are a lot of different perspectives on this. But from where I come in on in, in this piece is not on the Civil War question, but on the on the antebellum question of what what brought what political what was the political formula formation that brought up that that brought about the end of slavery that could make it even conceivable or possible and yeah and, and from that from that perspective um it wasn't just the it wasn't the kind of um it was neither sort of lincoln as a towering kind of great emancipator in, a, in any kind of solitary way um but neither was it uh simply a, a kind of vanguard of radical activists i mean there had been a vanguard of radical activists anti-slavery activists involved in, in the United States since um, at least the 1820s, you know, uh, who were demanding immediate abolition, um, who were sort of mobilizing um, activist communities, uh, black and white, to sort of denounce slavery and sort of appeal to the conscious, the conscience of especially Northerners, uh, you know, especially New Englanders and in the upper Midwest uh, to sort of denounce slavery as a crime and as a sin. Um, you know, these movements, and I don't want to, we can get into the narrative, but I, these, I don't want to sort of deny the importance um, of these movements in sort of a building a, a kind of a basis for anti-slavery opinion uh, or, um, and in fact, kind of producing in some ways the sort of the leadership and in some ways even the ideological worldview of anti-slavery leaders of the of the of the later of the 1840s, 1850s, 1860s. But obviously, you know, van, a, a sort of anti, an activist vanguard um, uh, was not enough to get the job done. And somebody like John Brown, who I, I don't I, I think is a hugely significant historical figure in terms of sort of accelerating and, you know, in a, and also radicalizing uh, this ideological conflict over slavery. He's most significant in the sense that he um, uh, he um, he emerged in the mid late 1850s uh, in the context of a, of a of a of an electoral 
uh, political movement, the Republican Party, that already was the dominant by the time John Brown emerged, was already contending to be, and then after 1856 was the dominant political force in the entire North. Uh, you know, and as early as 1856, two years after the parties really formed, and at the state level, the Republicans win a plurality of votes in the North, and. It's this movement, it's this sort of political organization, which, you know, explicitly uh, is explicitly organized to sort of win local, state and national elections, um, not as a kind of radical social movement independent from politics, but actually uh, bringing anti-slavery energy into the political, um, the, the sort of the, the political field. It's it, the argument of the piece is that it's that transition from, you know, to borrow a Bayard Rustin uh, line from the 20th century from protest to politics that uh, it doesn't it doesn't reflect a diminution or a dilution of anti-slavery energy, but actually an extension uh, and an acceleration of that energy and ultimately produces uh, the conditions that allowed for slavery's downfall. Yeah, yeah. I mean, <clears throat> right. Like you look at uh, you look at John, you know, John Brown, what what were these sort of, uh, you know, his most important like actions, I would say, right. um, it it was after the raid, in when he when he sort of set himself right. up as a martyr. You know, yep. the, the whole the whole raid on Harper's Ferry was so amateurish and just so poorly done, and the the goal so improbable that like he never could have actually inspired probably a, a serious slave revolt, but as a symbol for the North. For this kind of like, like, uh, uh, you know, anti, uh, <clears throat> an, an anti-slavery symbol, he was very effective. And I think, you know, one way that this bears on contemporary questions in an interesting way is is on the question of what do you do with state power, right? So, so there's a there's a question about like. Uh, a debate, rather, about what what should we do about the plague of Nazi terrorism? Um, so that you know, there's there's all these like you know right wing extremists. You have like militias who are sort of plotting to you know like assassinate AOC and stuff like that. Um, mm -hmm. You know, people have been uh, 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 imprisoned for this. And, you know, that sort of runs into the um, abolish the police um, or abolish jails, you know, like like the, the, the broadly, broadly speaking, the movement against like police brutality over the last few years, which has, of course, many, many good things to say, many, many important objectives. Like, let's stop shooting all of the unarmed, you know, black people for no reason. But, right. you know, I think one thing that the Civil War shows is that when you when you are faced with this sort of like totally recalcitrant uh, and 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 powerful enemy, um, uh, you know, like there's really no substitute for state power like the 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 the, the big advances in civil rights have always come you know, uh, through the action, you know, the conquest and the extension of, of state power by some sort of, you know, uh, uh, political force, right? You know, in the, in, in the Civil right. War, in the Civil Rights Movement, um, that's sort of a precondition and a precondition of, like, uh, union strikes working. You know, you, you almost right. have to have the state either behind your back or not stomping on your throat with the with the army right um a a absolutely i mean I, I couldn't agree more i think that's 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 part that's that's partly what 
sort of, I think, you know, to, I hope it's not inappropriate to say, catalyzed the uh, Republican <laughs> Party's effort to, you know, in the 1850s. It was, it was explicitly about, as an, as an anti-slavery mass party, it was explicitly about, you know, and they, t- they use this language, overthrowing the slave power. You know, it was about dislodging um, slaveholders and their accomplices and toadies from, you know, the positions of power in Washington, the kind of, in some ways, from overthrowing the forces that I wrote about in, in my first book about the foreign policy of slavery. It was about, you know, uh, to do anything about the larger question of slavery and slavery's future in the United States. Um, it was absolutely essential that uh, even in a, even in the kind of um, de- relatively decentralized antebellum federal government, uh, Republicans, anti-slavery politicos uh, were, were were convinced that winning federal power uh, was an essential ingredient to sort of putting slavery on the path to ultimate extinction, as Lincoln said. And I guess I would say on top of that, so if you need to win state power to sort of achieve any kind of radical reformist politics, um, the other thing that the Republicans did that I kind of want to highlight here is they they um, they organized a, a sort of a very explicitly majoritarian politics. Cause if you want to win if you want to win state power, you need to build, it's not enough just to have a militant minority. You need uh, on some level, something like a militant majority. And yeah. this was, I think this is, this is the distinctive thing about anti-slavery struggle in the United States that, that separates it from anti-slavery elsewhere, but also that really makes the 1850s so interesting is what, you know, the Republicans really adopted a kind of, um, we are the 99% strategy in, in, in attacking the slave power. Um, uh, and we can talk about the class implications of that, but I think just on the level of, um, of kind of, of, of numbers, um, the numerical, uh, the rejection of the slave power's rule is illegitimate because it put the government in the hands of what William Seward called uh, 100th part of the population. That is, there were 300,000 slaveholders in a republic of 30 million people um, that on pure majoritarian grounds, it deprived, you know, sort of ordinary northern white people and black people, just any ordinary non-slaveholding civilian. It deprived um all Americans of their kind of right to a democratic majoritarian government, and by by sort of co- concentrating power in the ha- in the hands of this oligarchic slaveholding elite that that whose economic and kind of political interests were utterly distinct because it was concentrated in this form of of property that 99% of the population didn't have, and. Uh, and I think that it was a really dynamic. I mean, often in the history books, this is this this kind of turn away from slavery as a moral crime and toward the slave power as an undemocratic force in government is sometimes, I would say, even often represented as a kind of retreat from the kind of moral high ground of abolitionism. But in my mind, you know, and 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 lining up with what you what you had said about state power, it's actually a kind of key ingredient in building. Uh, the majoritarian muscle necessary to kind of transform uh, an unjust and immoral situation. So this is really interesting because I think part of the argument, both historically and and the lesson for today, is not that um, you I, like the false dichotomy is you either make the the moral or maybe theological arguments or you make the material arguments, but that in fact, they go together really well. And and the we are the 99% then and now is actually something that very clearly binds the moral and the economic arguments into one powerful integrated argument. Is is that something that that you've seen in, in, in studying this period? 
You know, absolutely right. I mean, I think I think that's that's why I don't. Um, I mean, I think I think the the braiding of those two and the fusing of those two arguments in in terms of the anti-slavery politics of the 1850s was was really essential. Um, you know, Seward calling out, um, you know, William Seward, probably the second most important Republican uh, of this whole period. I mean, before the war, arguably more important than than Lincoln, um, uh, almost certainly in terms of sort of setting the ideological um, line for the Republican Party. And he was really and despite his own kind of. Um, uh, you know, he's a little bit of a sphinx-like character in terms of, you know, where he actually stood in his heart of hearts. But his rhetoric, which was totally galvanizing in the mid-1850s, um, was really, you know, tackled slavery as a moral and a material uh, problem. And I think something that might be lost if you're not a, a student of this period, and I don't know if it has even come through in some of the, like, the really – even some of the best works on the Republican Party um, is the extent to which the material argument was also a class argument that as, as in it was not uh, it was not a sort of, um, you know, a, a socialist class argument, but it was an argument aimed at an oligarchic slaveholding class. And the idea was that this slaveholding class in the hands of someone like Seward, you know, as Seward would put it, constituted, he literally would say a property class or a capital class um, that. Um, that 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 blocked the both the political and the economic interests of uh, the vast majority. So whether that came down to slaveholders rejecting a homestead bill to give uh, to open up land to settlers in the West, or whether that meant uh, slaveholders rejecting infrastructure, uh, funding for infrastructure in rivers and harbors and railroads uh, in the in the Great Lakes region, or whether that meant um, uh, simply slaveholders kind of, you know, dominating the, the offices of the federal government and the political, military, diplomatic apparatus of the government in order to protect slave property and enforce the fugitive slave law, et cetera, et cetera. Um, all of these things um, went against not just the kind of moral interest of the northerner, of the average northerner who considered slavery repugnant, um, but but went against the material interest. Uh, uh, you know, slaveholders were interested in the, you know, in the 1856 and 1860 campaign, they make a big deal about how Republicans make a big deal about how northern Democrats allied with southern slaveholders have basically worked to suppress wages through, um, you know, through unlimited free trade uh, dictated by southern planters and they're kind of the lords of the lash and the lords of the loom uh in in the northeast who are sort of profiting from a kind of mercantile economy of trade now you know we can get into tariff politics it's complicated but i think what's key is um, in, in this respect is that all of these kind of economic arguments in Republican hands um, were actually yoked to um, this this uh, what was also a deeply moral argument about uh, about slavery's kind of um, uh, slavery as a kind of brutal anachronism in American life uh, that um, that was the sort of the source and the kind of um, you know, the, the kind of that, that had sort of in effect spawned all of these other uh, maladies. A question that doesn't pertain to what you've written, but I'm just curious uh, because I have yeah. a, I have a historian before me. How how did this? Um, how was Calhoun pushing slavery as a positive good and, and and kind of trying to make the class differences among, say, the the rich plantation owners in the South and and basically appealing to those that didn't have that wealth that were white and saying, look, we're equally white and we're equally superior to the right. black race. Like, how how did that rhetorical or ideological move um, relate? 
to maybe perhaps combating uh, this other materialist argument on the other side? Or what, yeah, help, help me understand because it seems like they might be related. Yeah, the, well, the, the racial argument is a really powerful one on behalf of slavery. I mean, I mean, arguably, it's the kind of that's the kind of political synthesis that inspired not just Calhoun but allowed somebody like Andrew Jackson or the entire you know post you know 1830s Democratic Party um, uh, to 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 be the 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 default party of government throughout the antebellum period. Um, so I think that the, you know, the essay does talk, talk about the, the politics of race to an extent, because this is one of the most formidable obstacles that, uh, Republicans and, and anti-slavery, um, activists, organizers, political figures had to combat. Um, but I think the truth is, I think that basically, you know, to really simplify, um, the, the Calhoun argument about racial solidarity, trumping any kind of class interest, um, it worked pretty well in the South, uh, but it didn't really work that well, ultimately, when pushed and tested in the North. Mm. Um, um, I think that's the that's what the story of the politics of the 1850s are, because Democrats leaned really hard on those kind of arguments at different points uh, in election season. If you read the Lincoln Douglas debates, you know, Stephen Douglas is constantly um, trying to equate. Abraham Lincoln with Frederick Douglass. You know, he's he's just pulling out all sorts of I mean, the the, the vitriol and the kind of just really the vileness of the kind of, um, uh, uh, you know, Douglass's kind of racialized vision of democracy are not hidden, but actually like sort of front loaded. Um, and it, it, it is effective in the sense that it, I, you know, you know, Douglass won that election in 58. But ultimately, the Democrats sort of reliance on that kind of racialized politics in the North is not enough to withstand this new um, anti-slavery fusion of moral and material arguments. I mean, when when Republican Democrats always I mean, the short answer in northern politics is Democrats always want to talk about race and pose as the defenders of white supremacy and Republicans counter by wanting to talk about slavery and the depredations of the slave power and the slaveholding class and Democrats as toadies and as, um, you know, tools of the slave power. And, 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 and Democrats are on the defensive on that, on those grounds. And, um, in, in, in short, I, I, you know, the way I see this for this, in this whole period, I mean, and this dynamic continues through the civil war era also, um, um, you know, the politics of, you know, white supremacy are always very powerful. But I, I don't believe in American history, but I don't believe that they're invincible. Yeah. Well, th- this is another su- surprising thing. Maybe to, f- to finish up on uh, slavery, that um, um, y- you, you, you argue uh, fairly convincingly that uh, they're, <clears throat> they're like re- Republicans really were plotting to destroy slavery. Like they, 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 they didn't have like concrete proposals to, to, to like wipe it off the face of the earth immediately. But like, that was pretty obviously what they were aiming at. And so it, on the one hand, in a sense, like the South was right to secede in so far as they wanted to defend slavery at any cost. Um, and on the other hand, like I think there's been there's been a sort of a a, a, a argument, you know, that that um, you know the, the 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 antebellum Republicans were not as woke as they seem. Like Lincoln said, you know, famously, I think that that 
you know, his objective was to preserve the union. If I could do that by right. getting rid of all the slaves, I would do that. If I could get rid of, if I could do it by getting, uh, keeping all the slave slaves, I would do that. If I could, uh, unfairly maligned, but that's a digression perhaps. Yeah. Right. Um, you know, and I think there's, there's arguments that, 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 that was a sort of tactical feint pretty, you know, and, and, uh, Lincoln was, was famous for doing that sort of thing. But at any rate, you know, um, that but on balance like like the southerners were not they were not they they saw what, what was going on that that lincoln winning meant um a pro, you know the constitution of a solid anti-slavery majority in terms of the whole population of the country and therefore the doom of slavery um and therefore the 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 possibility that you could constitute a largely white uh, anti-slavery coalition, um, which could work to exterminate, you know, this, this like horrible, horrible atrocity. Right. And that's, that's kind of different from how people have talked about it recently. If, if I, I mean, I'm no historian, but no, that's, that that's, I mean, I think that's, that's, that's the, the sort of the most ambitious part of the argument in some ways. And we'll see how it, how it, um, how it stands up. Actually, I think as we speak, we're, uh, Jacobin Cattles are organizing an event where I'm going to be like in conversation with Eric Foner next month. And, um, oh boy. yeah, I'm not sure he's going to buy all that. So we'll <laughs> see. Uh, it'll be, it'll be, I, I want the argument to get some scrutiny. Um, just give him uh, some rosé cider or it, some rosé to, to start. Yeah, just exactly. smooth things over from the beginning. Like you're of the same Absolutely. class. Make sure he understands. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. We're all on the same page here. Yeah. We, yeah, we all, we all get off at the same, um, at the same floor from that elevator, but, <laughs> um, on, but, uh, but Ryan, yeah, I mean, I think the, um, the, the idea, first of all, on the, just, just sort of quick, um, like history, history dork reflex on the Lincoln letter to Greeley, where he says, "If I could save the Union by freeing no slaves, any slave." Yeah, I, Jim Oaks does tackle that. I think your 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 gloss on it is totally right. Jim Oaks does tackle this in Freedom National. I mean, Lincoln writes that letter in August of 1862. He's basically already decided to release the preliminary Emancipation Proclamation. That comes a couple weeks later, and he's doing this entirely to, um, you know, to to sort of frame a decision that he's already made. So it's not a, it's not in any way. It shouldn't be that, you know, um, you know, since 1861, Republicans in Congress. Um, as Oaks has kind of really shown, um, were, you know, from the first Confiscation Act onward, the War Department was really enforcing something like practical emancipation on the ground from very, very early in the war. So it's just a question of how fast that process was going to accelerate, not was that process going to happen. Um, and yeah, I mean, for me, just just on this question of Republican intentions um, about and what they were going to do with slavery. I mean, Lincoln is very explicit in that in that famous House Divided speech where he says the road to ultimate extinction. And you can poo poo that because later on, he'll, he says in other speeches, you know, it might take 50 years, it might take uh, a really long time. What does that even mean? Did Republicans really have a plan? Um, but, you know, one argument of this piece, which may have um, may not come as a surprise, given my take on contemporary politics, is that um, the sort of policy specifics are very often in political history less important than that kind of political essence. I think there's a line from Seward in here that I um, that I quoted at some point, which might be worth uh, resuscitating, where he says something like the character and fidelity of any party are determined necessarily not by its pledges, programs and platforms 
but by the public exigencies and the temper of the people when they call it into activity. And I think that's right. It's, it's in short, it's politics, not policy. And the Republican politics, its essence was it, it was not immediate abolition. It was the non-extension of slavery. But that's the policy. The politics was slavery needs to be put on the road to ultimate extinction. Agitate, agitate, agitate the question of slavery nonstop. That's how Republican opponents saw it, both Northern Democrats and Southern slaveholders, as you point out. And I think for me, the kind of knockout argument here is that's how – um, many of the most perceptive um, black abolitionists saw it, too. I mean, um, because, you know, Frederick Douglass, for instance, who plays an important part of this essay and is going to play. An important uh, you part know, of the book, I, I've heard of him. Trump yeah. said that he's getting more and more famous or he's doing like people are going to get to know he him is. more and more. Yeah, he's doing he great is. things. But you know what? You know what? Trump is right about that, because <laughs> I actually in the course of this, this is unrelated. Jacqueline's going to come out with this. I was doing research. I was reading Douglas, Frederick Douglass's paper at um Frederick Douglass's newspaper at Beinecke, it, it, it still hasn't all – library at Yale. It still hasn't all been digitized or microfilmed. Like the Frederick Douglass papers are – in com- the complete run aren't going to be due for another five, even maybe ten years. Uh, you know, John C. Calhoun's papers – uh, you know, have been laid out for decades. So, you know, we can talk somewhat, you know, you can, you can dunk on Trump for that, but he's right. You know, Douglas actually needs to get more recognized, I believe. Oh, yeah. um, and I found some stuff in 50, in the 56 Douglas paper. It's really fascinating to watch Frederick Douglas kind of respond to the rise of the Republican party. Cause he initially is very baffled. Um, and he's very ambivalent. He's loyal to this radical abolitionist party that is electorally punchless, but, you know, has the right policy basically on slavery, uh, calling for immediate abolition under the Constitution and so on. Um, but he realizes, as he realizes that the Republican Party is actually not defined by its present platform, but by its kind of, in effect, its politics, its its politics of slavery agitation, he's, you know, he comes to see by the end of the election season and he passionately argues, you know, in his weekly column, in his month, sorry, in his weekly columns that, you know, the, the purpose of the Republican Party is, quote, to destroy slavery. And this is and, and that purpose comes not just from the sort of virtuous leadership at the top of the party, but from basically the political energy of the of the north of a northern majority that has been roused against the slave power and against, uh, you know, a country dominated by slaveholders. And I think that's I mean, there are a lot there are a number of other, you know, Douglas is not alone. There are a number of other kind of much less famous um, black abolitionist observers who basically come to the same conclusion about the Republicans in the 1850s. And to me, that's a, that's a really powerful form of evidence that um this radicalism is not just something that, you know, a historian might be um, wishing and hoping and putting on, you know, you know, in search of a usable past of no, the 1850s. Look, if, if you've you got know. Frederick Douglass and Marx and Engels being, you know, given the thumbs up, <laughs> you, you got to question your, your understanding of the history if you think it's just a purely conservative movement, right? Like it's, it's, right. A, it's a weird, right. <laughs> weird bedfellows if that's the case. And, but I think that like if we tie it into today, that's really important because the point that you're making, I think, is so true that radicals, once they see that state power can be appropriated to the ends to which they're radicalizing people, um, are going to start to be like, hey, maybe we can go that way as well. Maybe we can mo- use the movement to influence uh, electorally and through the state, um, you know, just achieve our goals in, in kind of this mm-hmm. inside-outside way. And that ties into the, uh, we're going to call it the Abbott and Costello piece, but the uh, the Abbott and Gu- <laughs> Gustella piece in, in Catalyst in the same issue. Um 
Because there is this question of, and it very much goes to what you've been saying about how radical, uh, disruptive, and militant a majoritarian politics can be. Um, you know, what lessons can we have today in, in, in the face of Bernie Sanders campaign and DSA, uh, when thinking about how, as you, as you, I, I love how you, you put politics versus policy, agitation and radical action on a mass level can and needs to be, uh, balanced and thought of in context of electoral and state power. Yeah. I mean, that, that's what Republicans really did find is they found, I guess you could say the policy level or the kind of, um, the notch that was able to, you know, the non-reformist reform, as you know, some leftists would put it, um, you know, in terms of no slavery extension, no new slave states that, you know, was was totally inadequate, actually, to the case to end slavery, but more than adequate and, and therefore um, foundationally, you know, I- immensely valuable um, in calling up a kind of a, a, a mass politics against the slave power. Um, so. Some of it is about, and, and it's, so some of it is about finding that kind of, you know, threading that needle about identifying, um, you know, what what's not significant is the, you know, the the, the maximal demands are less important than, as, as Seward said, the temper of the people that is called up in response to them. So um, I, I think in in terms of, you know, contemporary politics, I mean, yeah, I mean, obviously, like, there's no way to avoid all this historical work, given, you know, what I've written on and how I've come to this topic. And I just am going to have to own that my historical and political thinking are intertwined. I think that's basically always the case, but somehow a lot of, a lot of history, I'd like to say that I'm just more honest about being a uh, political hack than most kind of liberal historians. Well, it would be weird. It would be weird if you, if you didn't connect it, wouldn't that be strange? I I am a scholar and know so many things about history and yet I'm going (laughs) to, I'm going to erase all that knowledge when it comes to applying it to the present. I'm going to not, not interconnect my scholarship. No, that's weird. And vice versa too. You know, I mean like, look, I'm going to make an argument and you know, both political and historical, I'm going to make arguments and you know, you'll agree half agree or totally hate it. I don't know. But yeah, I mean, for me, the, the, there are not exact parallels because in other ways, I mean, we can get in, we could get into this in some ways from a sort of a class perspective, you could say the arguments point in totally different directions in terms of what the Republican coalition looked like and, uh, and so on. It was definitely not a working class coalition in, in a, in a, in a, in a traditional sense, but in terms of, the the question about mass politics and what that would look like today. Yeah, I mean, I do think Bernie starting in 2016 um, and then, you know, ongoing into the present has been able to kind of summon a sort of formula of, um, yeah, non-reformist reform on, on policy um, that that really makes the political establishment, you know, both um, the sort of center left and the and the center right and the right really nervous, uh, appropriately nervous about some, the prospect of something like Medicare for all um, a, a arriving and transforming a sixth of the economy and so on. Um, but then also, even more fundamentally than his proposals, has kind of given voice to a new language of what you could call agitation against the billionaire class that I think, I mean, I'm optimistic, will actually outlive Bernie Sanders, the individual, um, and, and will kind of ha- has the potential to infuse a different kind of left politics or, uh, you know, that, that, that will be, really be, be a significant force across the 21st century. Yeah. 
Yeah, and this maybe gets into um, the uh, <clears throat> uh, uh, kind of flap about the the PMC, the professional yeah. managerial class that is that is sort of flared up a little bit. You've got an article in Jacobin about this. There's an article in N plus. Although I did not use that, I did not use that formulation exactly. I, try, <laughs> I was trying not to be super technical about it in that way, but yeah, basically, sure. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a little bit of a dubious concept, but you know, you're basically talking broadly speaking, like like upper upper middle class people, people who make a lot of money from labor. That was my income. thing. I was trying to restrict it to like hundred that you know you could call them six figure Democrats, not not necessarily doing a very tech, very um, precise sociological map, but just about you know how much money do you make? That seems significant to me. Yeah, yeah. And um, um, may, maybe to 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 sort of like, to, you know, because I've been sort of like tangentially in the in the takes here, and uh, you know, I, I <laughs> yeah, I, Ryan, I didn't get your take. I didn't get your take on the PFC wars. Breaking news, Ryan. What's the, your take? The well, so I, I had an article like why the upper upper middle class should become socialist, but I I think yeah. this was misinterpreted by a lot of very. Uh, well, you know, people with an axe to grind. Um, you know, I've I've been a Bernie supporter since 2015. I definitely yeah. think he's the best candidate. I will definitely vote for him in Pennsylvania. You know, if uh, if he's on the ballot for sure. Um, I'm a little bit softer on Warren than than some of the you know some some other people, but but uh, like you, Matt, but, but I, but I, you know, he is definitely the best, the best, uh, in terms of uh -huh. my own politics. That's fine. Now write that article. The, the point, the point of that article is I didn't, uh, I didn't bring you in, in, in my, uh, in my, in my, I didn't bring you in with Levitz and Iglesias. I you mentioned you me on Chapo. Uh, I did. Yes. But, but that, you know, I'm sure it's all in good, in good fun, but I, but I, as one of the good ones. Yes. But the the no, but the just to just to be clear about this, the point of this is not the the point of that article, as I'm sure people have seen, is not about like the sort of the the class formulation, like how people's material interests you know influence their beliefs. I'm trying to argue people into basically supporting Bernie, supporting Medicare for all, and that sort of thing. right. And the you know, I mean, it's like uh, we're all kind of in that in that crew you know sipping on that rosé and you know yep. in my in my own you know my own family my sister is not just a, a pmc a literal petty bourgeois a owner of a small business that makes a shit ton of money and she is bernie bro to <laughs> the core um right because there are a lot of, of them yeah, be, yeah well because because the healthcare is is it's impossible it's literally impossible for her despite how much money she makes and that speaks to, I think, you know, a certain opportunity to peel off sections of this, uh, this, you know, this group of people who, who may not be that numerically numerous, but are enfranchised to a much more significant degree, especially in our dog shit constitutional system, um, mm -hmm. to, to, to be, you know, supporters of universal benefits, you know, to, to be like the system sucks so bad and it's getting worse at such an accelerating rate. That you could say, yeah, you know, jump in here with Medicare for all. You'll be paying ten thousand dollars more in taxes, but you'll probably save a little bit on net, and then it will always be there for you, and you won't have to fuck around with it forever. And like those, you know, 
Well, and and political theorists here, uh, Ryan, it sounds like you're not arguing for like, you know, utopian socialism is going to work. Everyone will just, you know, be beneficent and and altruistic (laughs) despite their material interests being adverse to the change. You're saying the the actual material interests of the PMCs actually favors aligning with Bernie, right? Aligning with these. So so in some ways you're making a materialist argument. It's like epistemological. You're trying to like people need to wake up and realize that they've they've been uh, kind of duped into doing the work right i mean look i mean well yeah i mean ryan well i mean it's interesting because i i mean i would i don't i don't totally disagree and obviously like both bernie's and warren's kind of coalitions are fluid and 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 contradictory and overlapping but it does seem to be the case and i know a lot of this is age but i don't think it's entirely age it does seem to be the case that people making say if we just leave out the kind of uh move away from um um, you know, any, any Eric Olin Wright style kind of, or Barbara yeah. Anreich style kind sure. of understanding of what the PMC's, you know, unique position in, in, in class society is. It doesn't, it just, do, it, it is striking to me how little support Bernie specifically seems to get from people making over a hundred thousand dollars a year. And, and, and I, and, and I, and I, and I, and I, I don't take that to mean that Everyone in that class, everyone in that at that at that level of income is incapable of supporting Medicare for all. I mean, I certainly hope not, because we're going to need a lot we of thousand yeah, dollar a year that's people. Right. That's right. So, so I'm not I'm not trying to say like, oh, sorry, you're eliminated from the revolution. I mean, well, no, that, and, that and would be G- also Gabe's a piece is pretty from, much about like we need them. We need to figure out a way to bring them on, right? My sorry. Oh, sorry. Yeah. I was just saying, Gabe. Uh, Gabriel went on speech. Yeah, he I mean was, that's what that's that's what he's trying to argue. I mean, I thought I felt like his conclusion. I, I liked a lot of his analysis. I thought his conclusion got a little lost in the last couple of paragraphs. I didn't totally understand where he was going in terms of the where it how it how it shook down for him with Bernie and Warren. I know he's a Bernie supporter too, but right. it just didn't felt like it got a little lost in the in the um, in the jungle um, at, at the end. Um, but that's just maybe a Jacobin versus N plus one style difference. I'm not sure. Um, <laughs> You know, it's just a different. Uh, it's just a different. That's, are you aesthetic. saying that's a I mean, PMC okay. versus PMC aesthetic choice difference? Is that yeah? Uh, it's two yeah. different flavors of PMC aesthetics, <laughs> sure. But it's it's just a little. You know, I'm sure, and I'm sure M plus one would have plenty to say about Jacobin style. But I think, but 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 I but I didn't disagree. But I, I I actually agree with that analysis completely. And in Gabe, in a way, did it more. Um, you know, he even he he was even more precise about about the difference between Bernie and Warren in that Warren points to the kind of, as, as he put it, the kind of rehabilitation of the PMC as a kind of self-identified class where you could sort of, um, and now, now to extend his argument, but you know, where you can sort of see Warren as this kind of uh, ultimate avatar of, of not, you don't even have to be, I'm not even going to be um, ungenerous and say meritocracy, but just a kind of a, a, a moral version of the hardworking, um, you know, uh, you know, middle professional middle class striver. And, um, and that, and that whereas Bernie does seem to point not to its um, rehabilitation, but it's kind of decomposition and it's, and at least fractions of the kind of downscale, especially the downscale version, um, you know, slices of this PMC, whatever it is kind of fusing with a larger and more traditionally working class base, uh, of people who are, you know, um, who are not 
who 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 don't have this this those kind of credentials or that those kind of incomes um, to to um, and and who are making who make up the heart of the Sanders coalition. I mean, I, I did think it was it, it did feel like a little bit like vindication when all of that um, data about donors kind of dropped the week after the piece, which I barely I only included sort of superficially. But I mean, the more you get into the weeds, even some some of the skeptics, I thought. Um, like my console was sort of like, oh, yeah, well, actually, if you look at it, I mean, he really does in terms of I know the numbers are small, but relative. But in terms of if there's a candidate who's activating and I'm, I'm assuming you guys agree with this, but if there's a candidate who's really activating anything like a, 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 any parts of a traditional working class uh, or um, uh, it, it is clearly Sanders. And to me, the, the Sanders Warren question one way to put it is, you know, who who's driving the bus and who's along for the ride, and and uh, we need we need a we need a majority. I mean, I'm, this is where I I, I do hold with the, with the with the nineteenth century analysis. So I don't think we can sort of afford. I mean, it hasn't been true since the early 20th century that the industrial proletariat has anything like a chance to be a numerical majority on its own. I mean, that's never that's literally never been the case anywhere Uh, in Sweden. They had to deal with farmers. Right. You know, et cetera, et cetera. There's always been a need to form a cross class coalition and, and, you know, short of, you know, some kind of vanguard revolutionary thing. Um, And. And and in that case, uh, you know, that's fine. And I want all of that. But I just feel like I worry that um, the coalition as it is imagined and as it might take place under a under a sort of uh, the leadership of a Warren would look very different and 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 maybe much less mobilizing and activating than the coalition under someone like Sanders. Go ahead, Ryan. Yeah. Yeah, um, I mean, I, you know, I, I do I do think. I, I certainly think that Bernie would be the stronger general election candidate as long as he stays healthy, you know, <laughs> f- uh, uh, saying saying some prayers there, um, you know, and I think his potential coalition is broader. But I also think that that maybe you kind of aren't giving Warren enough en- enough credit here entirely, because um, I you know the way I see her sort of she's making a sort of well, what you might call it insider outsider play. Like she's trying to, she's trying to have, you know, a sort of populist appeal on the one hand. Mm -hmm. um, And then at the same time, reassure the people who, I think the fairly significant population of people who are basically just like democratic identitarians, like they just have an emotional investment in the democratic party, like per se, and they don't particularly care what it is. You know, or what vote it's blue, due. no matter who. That's it. Yeah. yeah, and I there are a lot of people yeah. like that. Like, like that's probably yeah. like half of people on you know who vote in primaries. Um, yeah, I can't and, tell you how many Democrats that I've met that are like, as long as we defeat Trump. Yep. I was like, oh, yeah. you're a privileged motherfucker, aren't you? <laughs> but the it's, that's you know, just my it's, my it's, instant it's, reaction, it's, right? That's yeah. my instant it's reaction. Good. It's good and evil, absolutely, yeah. And that, and that's why you know I think that 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 Warren is of any candidate in the race is most similar to FDR because he had both of those characteristics. Like like he was a sort of populist antitrust guy. He wasn't a socialist at all, or even much of a mm-hmm. union guy. But he but you know later in his presidency that became his like main thing: break up the businesses, regulated competition. You have the regulatory state and all of that. Um, and then on the other hand, 
absolute party fucking hack, you know, like, like just, mm-hmm. just support, you know, getting these, you know, with some rare exceptions. I mean, he did try to defeat some, uh, some Southern Democrats, right. Uh, later, later in the thirties and, and failed right. horribly. But like, you know, he comes out of machine politics, New York state, like Jesus fucking Christ. And he was super rich. But but he right. was you know the consummate politician I think certainly better than Warren at this or anybody in the part in either party at at, right. at navigating the currents of of politics and when he started his his um you know his presidency I think he was probably worse than Warren like he he wanted to right. be oh the first New Deal sucked yeah. well he yeah, wanted yeah. to be the balance wheel as a, as a uh, Luchtenberg whatever his name is says he wanted yeah. to be the balance wheel that was like okay we're gonna have Capital on the one side and labor on the other, and I'm going to make all the important decisions. And capital said, fuck you. And so FDR <laughs> said, fuck you back. I'm going with the right. workers. And like that was, you know, his 36 campaign and the, and the second New Deal in 35 and so on. Right. But wouldn't, but I mean, sorry, but you finish. I just was. No, gonna, no, jump in. You've got a Greek here. He's used to people talking over him. You have to do it. Do it. <laughs> Oh, no, just super quick. Well, this was the kind of thing. So if you listen to the Chapo, I mean, this was this, I we, we went deeper into this on that on that episode. But like this was sort of the argument that I teased in the piece, even though, is that, yes, no, I, I, I completely agree with your characterization of FDR. And in that sense, Bernie is a very different figure than FDR because yeah. Bernie is a kind of ideological vanguard guy rather than a kind of a party. I won't say even hack, but a party loyalist guy who's dragged to the left by circumstance and so on. But I don't I'm just I just feel like our situation is different both from the today is different both from the 30 1930s and the 1850s, frankly, Um, you know, uh, and and, in the sense that we don't have anything like an activated, mobilized labor movement or even a. A kind of a working class, any other working class forms of working class organization that, you know, in the span of a few minutes can um, can mobilize in the span of basically a midterm election can mobilize to um, to, in effect, force a party establishment to 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 or at least create the conditions in which a party establishment can do something like pass the Wagner Act and Social Security and so on. And in the absence of that. Like I do feel like the the calculus is different. Yeah, sure, I mean, sure. How do you how do you see that? And so like Warren Warren wouldn't you know if we had a if we had a labor movement like we did in the early 30s and the conditions like the Great Depression, then or if we had a mobilized anti-slavery movement like we did in the 1850s, because I think you know you could even say I was I, I hate to say this, but you know even. You know, Connor Kilpatrick will, will 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 not be pleased that we've you know for me divulging this. But like you know, <laughs> if we were you know obviously Jacobin would have opposed Lincoln for the nomination in 1860. We would have been all in for you know Seward or Chase or some radical Republican. You know, and we would have been pissed that yeah. it went to the sort of that it went to the pur- pur- purported moderate. So you know, for sure we could be surprised. And I hope, I hope I'm wrong about Warren, but I just feel like the conditions today around Warren in terms of the nature of the movement under her are, and, and the structure of society around her are different from the thirties and the fifties in a way that makes us 
need Bernie more than we needed, um, you know, ideological radicals in the in the 50s or in the 1930s. Well, there's an interesting argument to be made. So the Abbott and uh, I'm going to keep calling it Abbott and Costello piece, uh, a socialist party in our time. Uh, Is this Greek anti-Italianism? No, no. Una faccia, una razza. One face, one race. The Italians and the Greeks love each other. It's totally cool. (laughs) It's true. Uh, But no, no, no. The... um, uh, I just like bad jokes. But uh, <laughs> this piece points out, right, this interesting – there's lots of data. If you like data, you'll like this piece. Um, basically, 20% of the voting population, it, it figures out, are people who don't vote, who do not identify with either party but do not also lean Republican. And that Mm -hmm. group is 75% working class, it seems. Mm -hmm. And it seems like Bernie and his type of politics appeals to that group like like a sleeper cell that we could activate. And the massive amount of uh, mass politics that could be kind of um, just emboldened through uh, activating those currently inactive – Americans is just a it's a massive uh, group of people to tap into uh, through what seems like real working class politics and through the kind of um, agitation. So it seems like to wake those people up affectively would be to stand out and stand apart from the establishment in such a way, right, that uh, kind of warrens identifying um idiosyncratically as I'm a capitalist, which Liza Featherstone pointed out makes no sense. But like ju- like that kind of talk, <laughs> right? Like you don't own the means of production. You're not a capitalist. Uh, that, that's the kind of stuff that is definitely... You're just a tool of capitalism. <laughs> exactly. That's all. <laughs> exactly. Uh, no, no, so even if, you know, because then we have people on the other hand who say the actual policies don't look that different. Uh, we're so far removed from either, either social democracy or democratic socialism. What's the difference? For some reason, it seems like that affective difference and and those rhetorical differences might really matter when it comes to bringing in this huge people, this huge percentage of people that aren't yet involved and don't yet vote. Um, do 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 you think that's an important point in terms of like how we can get this militant majority today? I think that's a wonderful point, and yeah, I mean, I, I do really recommend you know um, uh, you know Catalyst readers to to read the Abbott and Gastella piece uh, for that reason. I think you said it perfectly. I'd actually like to hear what Ryan thinks. Yeah, well, <clears throat> I mean, um, that that's a great. Well, it's it's hard to it's a massive fucking article. It's hard hard to get <laughs> into it, but but I I would say you know it. So it's. All about like how how the left is going to deal with you know like like the the Democratic Party this anachronistic constitutional structure that we have you know they they say we need a, a party surrogate which I think is is pretty clearly like DSA a sort of standard for DSA mm-hmm. um, you know and and you can already see you know DSA members winning uh, election in, at, at various levels of government. We need us. We need a sectional strategy, et cetera. Yeah. Yeah, and I and and I would say, you know, when when it comes to twenty twenty, like I I think, I think that that there there's certainly a difference between Bernie and Warren, um, but I think that 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 this article would be uh, equally applicable in both cases. You know, my my general sense is that Bernie would be absolutely transformative in terms of the labor movement in the United States. Like he would be 
like on he would be joining the picket lines unlike any president i think in history except maybe like fdr when he uh when he uh like nationalized montgomery ward whatever and had the army carry that guy <laughs> out that's that's some good shit um but i also think that warren you know i don't think warren would do that but she would i think give her backing unlike obama where he was just bullshitting and and like when it came to card check, which is like like weak saw stuff to start with, he just gave up immediately. I think right. that she would push for that, and she would sign the bills. You know, I think that she perceives her political advantage to stoking uh, the the left in in her idiosyncratic way, which is more regulatory, which is more about antitrust. Um, but also has, you know, very significant just anti-wealthy stuff in there. And just like FDR again, you know, and like just jacking up taxes on the rich to, you know, like very much higher than they are today. Um, and so, you know, I right. think that, that, that this, you know, for, for the left to, to, uh, uh, it, it will, it will be even without Bernie at the top, which certainly might happen. Um, it will be even more critical to to sort of like hold, you know, if Warren wins, to to hold her feet to the fire, to to be there, you know, just like needling her at every point, to well, be, right. follow through I, with your your promises and so on. I absolutely agree, and I don't think that yeah, and I completely agree that the sort of party surrogate strategy continues under Warren, and it would look a little different, but it would be in substance the same, um, and um. And that, yeah, that 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 we, you know, that even Jacobin, I think, would shift from, you know, I can't speak for, you know, Bosker, but I think the 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 sort of DSA left broadly would would shift from, um, you know, just uh, to, you know, basically primary election competition with Warren to an attempt to sort of, you know, yeah, make Warren the vehicle for whatever we can get out of out of a out of a left wing presidency, but but that said, I mean, I, I still find Alexi's point really compelling about about it, it, you know it, within it, on the terms that um, Abbott and Gastella lay out, uh, you know, the unaligned working class block, um, this this sleeping giant at the heart of our politics. Um, I I do think I think it seems clear to me. I mean, look, it, I don't think Bernie is a is a is a magic genie that is going to suddenly you know double, you know, is going to double working class turnout or something like that. But it, it, it does seem not insignificant that the um, that 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 he is relatively, as far as I can tell, unique in uh, in modern American political history in that uh, such a large chunk of his most activated base is actually, um, you know, traditional working class or uh, at least lower income. Uh, and that, and that, you know, you have these, you know, huge, like very large numbers of teachers, nurses, bartenders, uh, drivers, uh, et cetera, who are donating to his campaign and probably volunteering for his campaign too. And it's just, to me, the, 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 on a, both on a, like, on a, on a, uh, purely kind of cynical electoral level in terms of activating that majority, but then also sort of providing, um, a kind of, any kind of basis for uh, other organizing efforts uh, 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 on the part of working people. Um, the Sanders campaign just seems to be 
like a, a you know, by far a superior, qualitatively different as a vehicle for that um, than, than Warren. And so that's 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 not even meant to be like a, a dig on Warren inherently. It's just more of a statement about Sanders's uniqueness. Well, and the fact that Warren also has massive rallies and, and huge, you know, turnout for her um, kind of campaigning is uh, only distinguishable, it seems to me, from Bernie when you think about which of these two candidates and their their form of populism will actually go with the trend, because I like this uh, Abbott and Costello piece, uh, how it talks about um, maybe counterintuitively, strikes are on the rise and, and union right. power actually might might be gaining momentum. And even if you just superficially pay attention to the news, whether it's West Virginia or or Chicago, you know, there there seems to be a lot more, uh, at least attention given, probably also actually more striking going on by workers. And is that going to be um, kind of symbiotic with and, and kind of potentiated by uh, a movement politics that Bernie is the, the leader of, or at least part of it, I mean, right? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, the, the picket line, the text to get out to the picket line, the, you know, Sanders zone kind of, you know, very, you know, lauded personal history of, you know, fighting for for labor and for union movements. I mean, yeah, I mean, I think I think the stats are pretty clear on this. I mean, mostly it's in education, but. I think last year you had more American workers on strike than any time since 1986. Um, there is there is something brewing in the kind of um, you know shrinking remains of of you know organized labor here that there's a militancy um, um, that still exists and that might even be growing uh, in the face of these uh, in the face of like you know really large hostile structural pressure against organized labor. Um, yeah, I mean, to me, it's just, I mean, it, this is, this is, this is my critique of Warren on one level. I mean, and, and this goes beyond, um, something that, uh, beyond any kind of quantitative or data driven analysis, but I, I, I don't think it's totally insignificant that, you know, and I know that FDR was rich and so on and blah, blah, blah. Um, but it's, it, it's, it's just, it's just in my gut, I just have this, and maybe this is just like PMC self-hatred or something like that, but like. <laughs> But like, you know, she that the that the, the idea that that this that that the political revolution is going to come out of Harvard Law School, I just can't quite swallow that and find that plausible in a way that she's going to be able to speak to this unaligned working class block. She may be progressive, but I just don't see her as a populist. And I don't see her kind of extending or building that coalition. I, I see for, and, and you know, and maybe this is an unreliable gut instinct, but I just see her, um, it, it, it's so easy to imagine her presidency par partly because of um, sort of what Ryan or Alexa, I forget who was saying that, you know, the, the vote blue, no matter who constituency is so kind of um, has been so easily assimilated to into the sort of folded into the Warren coalition. It's just easy for me to see her kind of governing from that base. And with because she has not um, actually activated the unaligned working class because um, she's actually facing a kind of accelerating conditions of, of class voting dealignment um, because, um, you know, all of these, you know, kind of structural things are against her. Um, it's easy for me to, even if ideologically she is going to be much better than Obama on card check and so on. I don't, I don't know if, 
I just don't know if she's going to be able to sort of forge um, the coalition that can resist those trends. Do you, do you, I mean, I don't know. This is complicated, I, I think, because there's two countervailing things to consider, right? You have, on the one hand, we were talking with Heidi Sloan, which is a DSA member running for the 25th district in Texas. And, and, and she, oh, yeah. you know, uh, is going to be, you know, the next Rashida Tlaib in AOC, hopefully in the House, a, a third member from the, the DSA. Uh, and we were talking about how stunted the political imagination is of the centrist, the establishment, people that think, well, we can't ever accomplish single payer because look at the Senate. You'll never get the votes, right? And just totally yeah. unable to consider how movement politics, mass politics could radically shift uh, what's politically possible, right? Um, and, and then on the other hand, you have, you have Gabe's piece and the idea that Warren – uh, she's populist in her rhetoric, certainly against billionaires and against uh, the super rich, but she at least has, whether it's conscious or not, has not offended the PMCs, right? And has understood that, that, uh, similarly to, to offend the democratic establishment and to be anti-democratic party seems at least ill-advised and perhaps problematic. Uh, and so there are mm-hmm. these arguments that, you know, what is the relationship to the democratic party and electoral politics? Do you need to kind of thread you know, the needle in a way where you bring on the PMCs, you don't piss off uh, the actual Democratic Party establishment, and you use them, right? You use them against the super rich in this way that can help workers. Uh, so that would be kind of the devil's advocate argument and, and, and something to consider as against, uh, you know, the more clear perspective that we all have about how successful Bernie is in part because he's anti-establishment, anti-democratic party in ways that activate new voters. So it's, it's complicated, right? Totally, totally. No. And I agree. I mean, I mean, and you know, trust me, if, if this, if this, uh, if, if, if we're dealing with a, with a Warren presidency, then I will be the, I'd be the first to, to sort of like fight and want to see this, this coalition come into being. I just think that there are, there are some limits uh, to what that kind of coalition um, can achieve uh, structurally. Um, but um, yeah, but I mean, and, 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 and well, and I guess, and I guess maybe it's sharpened because Bernie is in the race, you know, and like, we don't have to right. preemptively fold this, you know, and kind of accept um, this other form of politics um, when, when you actually have, you know, a competitive candidate who, um, who really does for, really does sort of point the ship in a totally different direction. And, uh, at least if not, not ideologically exactly, but in, in terms of the sort of the, to quote Stewart again, the temper of the people that he calls into being, um, you know, and its relationship with the democratic party. I mean, for me, I mean, this is, I don't think, uh, Abbott and Gastella sort of spelled this out, but to me, this is sort of implicit in their, in their piece that, and, and Ryan, I, I bet you might even agree with this because you've been sort of acknowledging Bernie's potential general election appeal. But I mean, the very fact of his non-alignment to me in, in, in partisan terms, you know, even though it's a definite handicap in the primary and it may be fatal, in fact, in the primary, if he can get out into a general election, I mean, to me, that 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 very sense of independence and sort of authenticity and trust that people always rate him uh, very highly for uh, is exactly the kind of thing that can activate a kind of unaligned working class block precisely because 
I, I, my understanding is a lot of these voters would be like, you know, sort of contemptuous of the current partisan alignment. And and that those are the kind of voters that I think somebody like Warren, who is for whatever else she is, a very blue Democrat at this point, is going to is going to is going to struggle to do. Yeah, I think that's right. And <clears throat> I mean, it, you're they're sort of pinion between two things, you know, because Bernie is like not a, officially a member of the party, even though, you know, he like he basically is running for the nomination of the party. Yeah. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, you have this fairly enormous uh, quantity of non-voters who are like theoretically attainable, but you don't know what will turn them out. You know, it's not back in like the machine politics days where, right. you know, you have the Tammany Hall turkeys and whatnot that like guaranteed to work really well. Um, but, um, you know, if it nominating an outsider might. Aid, yeah. Um, and also, doesn't it seem more potentially transformative, too, if we think that coalitions and, and the kind of bases matter in terms of driving and um, and 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 structuring and kind of prioritizing politics to me, the kind of. Um, you know, the, the, the group of Democrats who just want to go back to the last day of the Obama administration, who I think a lot of whom are in the Warren camp at this point, um, they're not as much as they, you know, may in some cases be either materially or ideologically OK with Medicare for all, you know, kind of on paper. I just don't see them providing um, having that kind of material interest in it that is going to drive the policy. Whereas, yeah, like an activated working class, like, you know, if, ter- if, 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 if Bernie Sanders were to sort of get elected with 65% turnout, as opposed even just jump cranking it up a few percentage points, but mostly from working class voters, I think that could change the complexion of things. I think, yeah, you'd get more, maybe Heidi Sloan's in office. You'd have, you'd have more voices in the national sphere and you'd have more, uh, you know, a, a more engaged population and maybe to wrap as we sort of move to wrap, I guess, um, connecting this back to, um, to the 1850s. I mean, there were in the election of 1856, the first election, the Republicans contested as an anti-slavery party, you know, turnout leapt from, um, from, uh, below 70%, I think to over 80%. So obviously it was much higher than, of course, only white men were voting. So it's a different population, uh, in, in most States. So there were actually a lot of black voters in new England and even in New York state. Um, but, um, uh, but, 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 but Republicans clearly activated a kind of sleeping, um, uh, something like a sleeping majority in the North, an unaligned, I wouldn't call it necessarily a working class block, but an unaligned Northern voting block that had been kind of dropped out of the second party system and, and threw itself into voting in 56. And then ultimately in 60, when Lincoln was elected with like 82% turnout. Uh, and even though he only got, like 39% of the popular vote, he got um, more votes than any president had ever received because turnout had been cranked so high. And he won, you know, 55% of the North. Um, you know, again, not to be too one-to-one, but the, 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 the power of that kind of activated, engaged political coalition is not to be trifled with, I don't think, historically or in the present. Yeah. Yeah, certainly not. You know, and, and I think, you know, I guess I would say just as a final comment, like, yeah, whichever one wins, if we grant them the benefit of the doubt, you know, Bernie will have to make a play to the Democratic hacks, you know, Um, and Mm -hmm. Warren, I think more importantly, will have to make a play for 
the you know the the disaffected working class, the people who don't believe in Democrats because Democrats have sold them down the river for thirty years straight, and um, you know you hope that 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 she could see that and she won't do what like the the this canaan guys like will wilkinson are saying that she's going to turn to the right to try to win over never trump republicans and abandon (laughs) all of her current you know uh uh, commitments but i'm fine to scare everyone into thinking that might be the case so that bernie (laughs) wins and then if he doesn't we can say hey you said vote blue no matter what come on yeah yeah yeah, exactly. Yeah, or you don't have to roll the dice on that, and <laughs> exactly. and and just and you just have you just have the guy. Yeah, the yeah, absolute you have boy. The problem of He's Bernie. the absolute boy, the guy, the dude. Yeah. yeah, the dude, the man. Yeah, you have the the person, the person. We're not going to gender this. He's, He's the man of the his person. time, the person of his time. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, thank um, you, Matt Carp. We'll we'll wait till next time to ask you other questions we wanted to harangue you with, like. The fact that Ryan thinks FDR was the the best president instead of Lincoln, we, we're going to get your uh, Ooh, get you to weigh in on controversial that. Controversial take. We'll yeah. see. Well, when I when I when I if I ever write this uh, this damn book, then we'll see if he still agrees. But yeah, <laughs> exactly. Interesting. Yeah. So there's yeah. that, and then we have the question of of whether we're. Um, if America is exceptionally evil, because we, we we on this podcast like to think that American exceptionalism is bullshit in both directions, that we, like other <laughs> other empires, are no more or less evil than other places and, in fact, can be redeemed if we have the socialist left win movement. Policy. Absolutely. Yeah, that's that's where that's my that's my instinct on this stuff, too. Yeah. Cool. Got it, baby. Well, thank you so much so, for yes. joining us and, and we hope you come right. back. Thank you. Thank you. OK, awesome. It was fun talking with you guys. All right. Yeah. Have a nice night. Good time for listening. See you, man. Bye bye.